Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. We want to bow ourselves before your word, Lord. And here in this um, little scene before Jacob's death, we could just write it off as just, just an ancient story that occurred some 4,000 years ago or so and is meaningless to us today. And there are some things hard to understand in here that don't fit our culture. But open our eyes to see the wonderful things you have for us in this text. To see all that you are for us. To see your sovereign freedom to choose whom you wish. And to create faith in the hearts of your people. Even someone like Jacob. So teach us now, Lord. You're the real teacher here. Instruct our hearts in your ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 11.1 1 is probably the most succinct definition of faith in Scripture. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or evidence of things not seen. Faith lays hold of what God has promised even when the fulfillment seems impossible or a long way off, generations away. Faith understands that God works on a totally different timetable from us. God works on a timetable of centuries, of millennia. We work on a timetable of minutes and hours, and if something takes a few months, we're impatient. As we've studied Genesis, we've seen God make covenant promises to Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, And then that gets passed on to Isaac, to Jacob. And now here we are approaching the end of Jacob's life. And over these next three chapters, 47 to 50, we're going to see the death of both Jacob and Joseph, the end of an era, if you will. And when Moses picks the story up again in Exodus chapter 1, over 300 years will have passed. Over 300 years. That's the kind of timetable God is working on. By that time, Joseph will have been long forgotten in Egypt's history. But right now, we're watching this story, this Genesis story, wind down. And we're about to see in great detail an ancient Middle Eastern custom by which the birthright inheritance is passed down from one generation to the next. And we're going to see it played out in great detail. I want you to I don't know if you heard there as Alan read the details of this story, of this blessing. And the details are really important, so pay attention. If I were going to summarize this text in three words, it would be what you see on the outline there, adoption, blessing, and faith. And then in the background, overarching those, would be God's sovereign freedom to choose whom he wishes in any given situation. So we'll look at the custom of blessing and what that signified in, that, in the culture of the Bible. We'll see, totally, to see Jacob totally mess up that cultural tradition in the way he gives the blessing. And yet God is going to use this last act of favoritism that Jacob does for his son Joseph to fulfill his promises in the way that he so often does, by making the last first, the least, 
the greatest. And here, like we saw last week, with all Jacob's ups and downs, his successes and failures, here as he approaches the end of his life, we see his faith stronger than ever in the promises of God. That's amazing. By faith, he lays hold of these promises that he'd received so many years before, even though he knows he's not going to live to see their fulfillment. And he bequeaths those covenant promises to the next generation. Think about that. Bequeathing promises, things that you don't actually have, but you know they're going to come to pass. So he bequeaths them on to the next generation, and in doing so, he's an example to us of faith that looks to God's purposes that go far beyond even our own little lifetimes. And I hope it'll build our faith as we watch this happen. So let's look at these three key words that I mentioned. First, let's take adoption. So before any of this blessing or bequeathing or inheritance can take place, there has to be an adoption. So Jacob plans to pass the promises not directly to Joseph, this is really interesting, but to Joseph's two sons born to him in Egypt. I'll talk about why I think he's doing that in just a moment. So here we go, verses one and two, Joseph is informed that his father is ill. He's, he's near death. So Joseph takes time away from his busy schedule as the vice regent of Egypt, and he comes to see his father. Maybe, maybe, this may be for the last time. And he brings his two sons along. Now Manasseh and Ephraim, remember, are only half Hebrew, right? Their mother is an Egyptian. So what Jacob is going to be doing here is calling Joseph and his two grandsons to repudiate their high position in Egypt and identify fully with Jacob and his family because that's the family that God is blessing and through which the blessings will come. Only in this way are they going to have any legitimate claim on these covenant promises. I think this is why Jacob goes through this adoption ritual. Now, what are these covenant promises? We've talked about them a lot in Genesis. And Jacob's about to pass them on. What are they? He tells us when he recounts his own receiving of these covenant promises right from God in verses 3 and 4. So let's read that. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So let's pull that apart for just a moment. The title God Almighty in the Hebrew is El Shaddai. Most of you probably don't know Hebrew, but if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard that term. It's a reminder that God is limitless in his power. There's nothing impossible for him. Look, he can give a child to a 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife. We've already seen him do that. He can rain fire down from heaven and destroy two cities in one fell swoop. In fact, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. He speaks the entire universe into being. Nothing here would be here if he didn't speak a word. This is the all-powerful, almighty God. He's the one who has all power and all authority to use that power in any way he so chooses. 
and no one can question him. That's what it means to be El Shaddai. Now, this Luz is another name for Bethel, so you're probably more familiar with that name. It's the same town. And so he's going all the way back to that dream he had on his way to Padan Aram when he's running from Esau. Esau's trying to kill him. He's running to Padan Aram. You remember that story? He goes to sleep with his head on a rock, and there's a ladder up to heaven, and God blesses him there. God bequeaths on him the covenant promises that he'd formerly given to Abraham and Isaac. So let's notice the elements of this blessing. First, God tells Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. Does that sound familiar? Where have we heard that before? Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve. That's the part where you're supposed to answer me. Then the promise is made. (laughs) There, thank you. (laughs) Then the promise, there's a promise to make him a company of peoples and establish him in the land of Canaan. So we have a, a promise of forming the people of God in the place that God chooses, the land of Canaan, right? So people and place. We've seen that theme throughout Genesis. This is the covenant promise that Jacob will be passing on But like I said, he can only pass it on to legitimate heirs. Now, who are legitimate heirs? Normally, in this culture, it would be passed on to the firstborn son. In this case, Reuben. But Jacob rejects Reuben for this honor and instead passes it on to Joseph, but not even Joseph directly, indirectly through Joseph's two sons. The text doesn't tell us what Jacob is actually thinking here, but I think there's at least three factors at work. Two of them Jacob probably intends, and the third he may not even be aware of, but God is doing through him, perhaps without him even being aware. So here's here's what I think these three, three intentions are. Number one, Jacob deliberately is displacing Reuben and Simeon as the first and second born sons deliberately displacing them. Talk about why in a moment. We're told why later in 1 Chronicles, and I'll read that text. Number two, by making Joseph's sons his own, think about this, Jacob will end up giving a double portion of the promised land to Joseph. Instead of just passing it on to Joseph, where he'd only get one-twelfth, instead, now do your fractions The family of Joseph is going to get one-sixth of the promised land over all his brothers. So this is an act of favoritism. And although God intends it, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not saying that parents should favor one child over another like this. And then the third, the, the, the thing that Jacob probably isn't fully aware of, but that God is doing is preserving the number of tribes that will inherit a chunk of that promised land at 12. Isn't that interesting? 12 is a really important number in Scripture. And we could do another sermon on on why that's an important number. We won't do that today. But remember what happens later on. The tribe of Levi is separated out by God to be the priests, right? They're to be the priest clan. And they're not going to get a chunk of the promised land. They're going to get scattered in various cities and towns throughout the other tribes. They don't get a piece of the promised land. So that means the promised land will only get divided into 11 pieces. 
But by, cho- by choosing both Ephraim and Manasseh, it preserves the number of tribes at 12. So God is at work through Jacob, even when Jacob doesn't realize it. And that's a lesson for us. God is always doing more than we think. So in any situation or circumstance you're facing or going through right now, just be aware that God is doing way more than you could even imagine. Everything you can imagine God doing, it's, there's way more than that. Now in verses 5 and 6, Jacob makes this adoption official. Let's read it again. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Jacob is saying, I'm taking them. They're going to be counted as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you father after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the, names, by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So anything they get comes through their older two brothers. Now notice again, the displacement of Reuben and Simeon is the first and second born. I said I'd read you a text that explains what's going on there. Over in First Chronicles, the writer of Chronicles is recounting the genealogy of Jacob's family. And when he gets to Reuben, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he lists off the names of Reuben's descendants. And he says, these were the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. He was the firstborn, but his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. Because Reuben defiled his father's bed. He is not listed in the genealogy according to his birthright. The birthright, he's still listed there, but his birthright is taken away. Although Judah became strong among his brothers and a ruler came from him, the birthright was given to Joseph. We could add through his two sons. Now, so this is an adoption. Jacob is adopting these two kids. And that echoes our adoption as children of God. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, when we're treasuring him above all else, when, when our faith is in him, then we are adopted as children of God. You're members of the family and therefore legitimate heirs of the promises of God. Talk more about that later. All right, second word, blessing. So having claimed Joseph's sons as his own, and then he briefly remembers with sadness Rachel's death in verse 7, Jacob now proceeds to bless them. Let's talk about that concept of blessing because it's a little strange to us. We don't have anything quite like it in our culture, so I'm not sure we get it. If we think of blessing, we think of it more like wishing somebody good luck. The Lord bless you in that business you're starting, or the Lord bless you in that ministry. It's almost like wishing, it's a really spiritual Christianized way of wishing somebody good luck because we don't believe in luck, right? The word blessing sounds more spiritual. That, that's kind of the way we think of it. It is sometimes used that way in the Bible. But here, the blessing is something far more significant and important. We've seen already in the, we've seen that already in the significance of God blessing Abraham. And that blessing is intended to be passed on to his descendants. And it is. God's appearance to Jacob at Bethel was a clear message that God himself was passing this promise on to the next generation. 
We saw it, here, see if you remember this one. We saw it in the fact that once Isaac blessed Jacob, remember Jacob deceived his father into thinking he was Esau and stole the blessing of the firstborn. But did you notice that Isaac never took that blessing back? I mean, we're just thinking, hey, this is just words. Why don't you just say, yeah, Jacob, you, you deceived me, so I retract everything. I said, take it all back, and I'm going to give it to you. Why couldn't he do that? In that culture, that was unthinkable. Once the blessing is given, it's as good as an official legal document signed by all parties in our culture, and there's no going back. So clearly, it doesn't even enter Isaac's mind that he can do that. And that shows us how critical these patriarchal blessings were. Now, Jacob's about to bestow the blessing on Joseph's sons that should have been given to Reuben and Simeon. For these reasons, I think it's clear to say that this blessing is more akin to what in our culture we might call bequeathment or inheritance, the granting of an inheritance. It was a means by which rights and property and position were passed on from father, usually to the firstborn son. This is why birth order was so important in that culture. It's not really very important in our culture. We don't think of it that way. But back then, the firstborn got the biggest piece of any wealth or land or inheritance. It was really important, this birth order thing. So, but here, the birth order is even more important because the blessing passes on not just land and earthly wealth, but the covenant promises of God. Through this idea of blessing, God had passed these promises from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, now to Jacob's sons, grandsons, well, he's adopted them as his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. All right, so with that as background, let's pick it up in verses 8 and 9. Then Israel saw Joseph's two sons, Joseph's sons. He said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him. And he kissed him and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. So Jacob's question here, who are these? I don't think he's asking that because he doesn't know who's in the room with them. I think he knows who they are as far as their names. Rather, he's formally recognizing them as his, first, his now first two sons. And therefore, the very ones he's claiming as a, in, in this adoption back in verses 5 and 6. Now, it's really significant that Moses, the writer of this passage, goes into great detail about how the blessing now gets conducted. So Jacob is officially acknowledging, who are these? They're mine. These two sons of yours are mine, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then in verses 13 to 14, we see this kind of detailed description of this laying on of hands. Listen. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, 
And Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near to him. Remember, they're facing each other now. So what's on Joseph's right hand would be on Jacob's left and vice versa. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. And, and then the writer makes specific point for Manasseh was the firstborn. This is messing up the tradition. This is messing up the culture. So clearly to the writer of Genesis, Moses, it's very important for us to note this crossing of hands. And so we see another ancient custom that we might not be familiar with. Why is the right hand so important? Who cares which hand is on whose head as long as he gives a blessing? Well, the right hand was seen as a symbol of power, a symbol of strength, a symbol of rank. And so it would have normally gone on the head of the firstborn, the one with the preeminent rank in the family. It was, a, it was this position of preeminence. We see remnants of this even in our culture when we speak of someone being a right-hand man to someone else. That's kind of a carryover from that way of thinking. We, and we see it when we see in Scripture Jesus talked about as being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we know that God the Father doesn't have a physical body. He's a spirit. So it, isn't it useless to talk about right hand, left hand? Uh, the right hand is used there as a symbol of position of prominence and authority. That's where Jesus is seated. So that's why it's very important, very critical in that culture that Jacob's right hand is going on the younger. It's messing everything up. Then we have the blessing itself. Let's look at that in verses 15 to 16. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. I want you to note the threefold reference to God here, twice using the common word for God in Hebrew, Elohim, and once calling him an angel, I think this is just the angel of the Lord. We've seen the angel of the Lord appear before in Genesis. We'll see a few times just a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or a physical appearance of God in some way. And Jacob got one of those, right, when he wrestled with God. With each reference, Jacob recounts God's faithfulness through the generations. So first, he says, the God of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, so he recognizes that this is the same God from generation, God working across generations. Then he recounts God's faithfulness to him personally, the God who has shepherded him all his life to this day. So he acknowledges God's shepherding of him. And then he recounts God's redeeming and protecting grace to a scheming deceiver like him. He says, the, God, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, so this threefold reference to God. And then finally, he bestows the blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh as rightful heirs. And you'll see that that blessing includes 
growing into a multitude of people, being fruitful and multiply, and land, an everlasting possession. All right. Now, let me interrupt. Before we get to the third word, faith, I want to just pause and talk about this background concept we've seen several times in Genesis that's throughout Scripture, and that is God's sovereign freedom in choosing. We see this in verses 17 to 22. So, in verses 17 and 18, Joseph kind of wakes up to the fact that as Jacob is pronouncing this blessing, his hands are crossed, and that's not right. So he tries to correct that. He tries to switch it. But Jacob... Maybe he thinks it's because Jacob's eyes are dim, he can't see. But Jacob says, no, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. It's deliberate. Because in this blessing, Jacob is also giving a prophecy. He's saying that the younger is going to have the place of preeminence over the older. For God's own sovereign reasons, the Holy Spirit moves Jacob to cross his hands. And isn't that so like God? Haven't we seen that so much in the scriptures We've seen it many times up to this point. God is sovereign and free in everything he does. He's the only truly free being in all the universe. We think we're free. We're not. God chooses those whom he chooses, and it may not be according to those we think ought to be chosen. Remember, he chooses Isaac, not Ishmael, the firstborn. He chooses Jacob, the secondborn, not Esau, the firstborn. And here, through Jacob, God himself is choosing the sons of Joseph over the firstborn Reuben and getting down into even more granular detail, the the secondborn of Joseph, not the firstborn. God is always choosing to work through the least likely from a human perspective. Which makes me think of 1 Corinthians 1. And I'm going to tie that in here because I think it's so good. We, you, probably, you, you probably know where I'm going with this. Let me just read that. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. For consider your calling. So I'm going to apply this to us here today. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. Why? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. Why? To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chooses the second. God chooses the low. God makes the last first so that the boasting will not be of us. It'll be all of him. All the glory goes to him, and human boasting is negated. That's the kingdom principle we see again and again. Jesus talks about it when he says, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. God isn't looking for the rich, the famous, and the powerful, which is good, because I'm not, and you're, most of you, I don't think, are. How many of you rich and powerful and famous? Uh, yeah, I'm not seeing any hands go up, so... I'm glad God chooses people like this, that he chooses according to his sovereign freedom, not, what, not who we would naturally choose. Okay, let's take our final word, faith. Faith inherits the promises. So 
I just want to ask what this story teaches us about our new covenant blessings. What does it mean when we walk out of here today? I want to share three practical things about faith in closing that I hope will help you in your walk with Christ. So number one, like Jacob, we inherit the promises by faith. We inherit the promises by faith, not sight. This story is recounted by the writer of Hebrews as the very pinnacle of Jacob's faith. In Hebrews eleven twenty one, we read this. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Interesting, out of all the incidences in Jacob's life, including his wrestling with God and all of that, the writer of Hebrews picks this story as the very pinnacle, an example of faith in Jacob's life. How confident is Jacob that God will fulfill his promises? Take a look at verses 21 and 22. Jacob says, behold, I am about to die, but God, listen, God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now, commentators are divided, don't know exactly what how to interpret that last verse and whether it's an actual plot of land. It might be the town of Shechem. You remember that story. But I want you to notice Jacob's confidence. I emphasize the word will for a reason. God will be with you. He will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Remember what I said at the beginning? How long is it going to be before any descendant of Jacob gets back to the promised land? It's actually going to be 400 and some odd years. 400 and some odd years before they actually get that inheritance. So none of the people in this story are going to be around for that, right? Jacob does not, view, like we saw last week, Jacob does not view Egypt as his home. And he doesn't see that as the fulfillment of the promises. He's looking beyond his, the time of his own sojourning to future generations. The promises God has said will happen even beyond his own lifetime. And listen, we have even greater promises. And those will go beyond our time on this earth as well. We've been promised a lot more. Listen, we have been promised a lot more than a piece of land in the Middle East. Okay? What have we been promised? Nick mentioned it last week. A new heaven, a new earth, an entire new universe. We've been promised God himself to dwell as God's people in a new universe, in his presence and under his rule forever. Here's a new covenant version of the promises that Jacob was passing on that I believe are, that, that they're ours by virtue of our adoption into God's family. Now, I could have gone to several different New Testament scriptures to get a new covenant version of those promises, but I love 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Listen to the inheritance language in this passage. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice how our inheritance is being kept safe by God for us, and we are being guarded for it. Okay, so the two have not yet come together fully. We've, we've experienced some pieces of that inheritance. We have new life in Christ. We're forgiven our sins. Yep, all of that. But we don't have the fullness of it yet. God is keeping it for us, and he's keeping us for it until the day that it's brought together. And actually, I think he is our ultimate inheritance. He is the greatest inheritance we'll get. All that we've been following throughout Genesis, all these promises about land and multiplying people and so forth, that's all just foreshadowing the ultimate reality that God intends to share his glory in his kingdom with all his adopted children. And when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, treasuring him above all else, we are adopted into the family and given the same right to the inheritance that Jesus has. That's amazing. Second thing I want to say about faith. I just want to briefly discuss some false applications of faith. You can go wrong on this faith thing if you're not careful. One way is you can put your faith in things God has not really promised. This is kind of my complaint with the prosperity, name it and claim it, gospel Things that God has not promised in this life are claimed. It it will not do you any good to put your faith in promises God has not made. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a faith that lays hold of what God has actually promised and trusts. Another way that faith can go wrong is to buy into the world's empty philosophy about faith. Things like believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Or have faith. Have you ever heard that expression? Just have faith. It doesn't really matter what in, just have faith. That's how the world talks about this. As if the object of your faith weren't really important. And I'm just going to tell you, it's all about the object of your faith. Not the amount of it, but the object of it. If your faith is in yourself, or in some other human thing, or something in this world you're going to be disappointed again and again. So that's not where our faith and trust is to be placed. Now let me say one more thing where faith can go wrong, and that is, I just want to say a word about doubt here. Because let's be honest, we all have times of doubt. We may like to let people think that we never doubt, But every one of us has had our faith put to the test in some way, shape, or form that will cause doubt. Doubt about whether any of the promises are real. Doubt about maybe whether God is real. And maybe you're in that place today. It's not unusual. One purpose of the church, the body of Christ, is to help each other through those times. So don't be silent about the doubts. The problems with doubts come when we don't talk about them. So if you're a young person here today and you're struggling with whether all this stuff you've been taught is really real, let's talk about that. 
If you're going through a dark night of the soul where God seems distant and your prayers aren't being answered and you're doubting, let's talk about that. Doubt isn't unusual. We can help each other if we're honest. But if you harbor doubts and keep them inside, afraid to talk them up, talk about them because it might make you look unspiritual, that's where the danger lies. So the goal here is not to stay in doubt, but to deal honestly with doubts. All right, that, those are just some things about where faith can go wrong. And then third, third thing I want to say about faith, it clings to the promises of God even when they don't seem to be fulfilled. Remember, Jacob is passing on promises of land and fruitfulness that he doesn't possess and which he won't live to see. God is a work, remember, over centuries of time. We're so limited in our vision. If God doesn't come through in a few days, maybe a few weeks, we're tempted to doubt and question, to grumble and complain, to give up. But much of what God has actually promised is yet in the future. Right? I said a moment ago, we have some pieces of it now, but the fullness awaits the future. And frankly, things aren't going too well for us in this world right now. Globally, Christians' persecution is increasing. It can look pretty hopeless sometimes. It can seem like the promises are a long way off, maybe even in danger of not being fulfilled. <laughs> We've been waiting 2,000 years so far, and clearly we have to keep waiting. But listen, faith, how did we define it at the beginning? It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you have to see it, it's not faith. So how can we have assurance of something that we don't have yet? Because the one promising it is God Almighty. It's God Almighty. Faith is not wishful thinking based on fairy tales. It's not a blind leap in the dark. You hear that a lot. It's, not, it's based on the solid, sure character and power of Almighty God. He will keep his word and he, is, he has the power to do it, which gives me hope that my faith can endure even with my imperfect holiness, even through dark times and doubts, even when trials come, because faith doesn't look at myself and hope that I can make it, I can be good enough. It looks at Jesus and depends entirely on his mercy, his faithfulness, and his power. Let's pray. Ultimately, Father, the gift of faith comes from you. We can't create it ourselves. I can't create it in my own heart, much less the hearts of anyone else in this room. So I pray for you to give that gift to people who are listening to these words now, to people who may be struggling with doubts, to people who may not even believe any of this stuff in the Bible, who might be here today or listening online, to those struggling in dark places. Cause faith to arise, Lord. We need you. In times when it seems dark and when things seem to be getting worse in our culture, in our world, we need faith. 
and you are the giver of every good and perfect gift, including the gift of faith. So come, Holy Spirit, and turn our eyes to you and help us see you, behold you, love you, and treasure you above all else so that your promises seem more real even than the chairs we're sitting in or the ground we're standing on or the food we'll eat today, that you will be more real than the air we're breathing and the things we see with our eyes. Help us, Lord, grow our faith as we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.